0: Hello, agents, and welcome to the second episode, a continuation of the pilot episode of our discussion of Warehouse 13.
1: Your voice is so beautiful. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I just am channeling my inner Mrs. Frederick when I talk. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I guess I'll say this. So welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Miranda Butler. I am a PhD candidate in English.
0: And I'm Jillian Nussbaum. I do descriptive video services for the visually impaired, and I do transcription for the hearing impaired. So I help make TV accessible for others, in addition to
1: writing my own stuff. We talked so much and got so much good stuff last time that we have split our episode in two. So in our episode 101A, we had two actor spotlights. And in this episode, we have mostly informal segments but we do have one very special, slightly different, but slightly related segment to start off with, and that would be writer appreciation. My favorite
0: subject. Okay, so this is an interesting situation because normally you just see written by, and you see a name, or if it's two people, that's called a writing team. This one is created by Jane Espenson and D. Brent Moat, the teleplay is by D. Brent Mote and Jane and someone called David Simpkins. And the story is by Jane Espenson and D. Brent Mote. That's a lot of different parts, which tells me the concept was created by Jane and Brent. And then the actual writing, the teleplay, was done by those two and David Simkins, And then the story, the overall idea of how everything works tied into creation, is Jane Espenson and D. Brent Moat. What's really interesting is that it makes sense for me personally that Jane Espenson, who wrote for Buffy, Firefly, Angel, Battlestar Galactica, like anything that's good, she's been involved in it. It's great. And then David Simkins wrote on Charmed, Dark Angel, Dresden Files, Human Target, contemporary shows with Buffy in the year she was on it, same sort of sci-fi world, which makes sense to me but d brent moat the co-creator his career goes back to 1994 and he worked on dr quinn medicine woman was the highest profile thing i saw but i i don't understand how he got into contact with these two people and like did this thing i'm confused but intrigued but also the most interesting part of this to me is that the showrunner of this show is someone named jack kenny who is a wonderful show creator, really contributes as we go on to the look and feel of the show. Um, I suspect contributes a lot to the idea of it as a queer icon show because he himself is a queer man who is married to his husband, but he's not involved at all in the pilot. Like, he is listed on 63 of the 64 episodes, I mean, of the show, but not on the pilot. So, por So that's that's what I have about writer appreciation. It's a little more detailed than I expected going into it and then I usually get from a pilot.
1: We left off with the extended introduction that ends with the big zoom out showing you how big the warehouse is and getting the title Warehouse 13. And then we kind of cut to Artie offering what I described as a techno-babbly explanation of the artifacts housed in the warehouse. For some vaguely Einsteinian reason, they have energy that gives them special and potentially dangerous powers. They can be neutralized with purple goo, and we don't really know much more about what that is. It doesn't matter. It's just the mythos of the show that that's how it works, and then they tuck away the artifacts in this top secret, again, vaguely government secret location in South Dakota.
0: Yes. I I did want to say something about the purple before we move on. Please do. Okay. Going forward, I have a theory about what may be happening visually in the show. Because certain shows have a certain look about them. Like everything on USA Network is kind of... Looks like an ad out of Tommy Bahama or something. Everything's (laughs) very bright. Everything on the CW looks like a glossy teen magazine. It just has a look and feel. Um, This show... It's visuals I can't categorize in such a broad way, but I will say I've noticed two important colors arise. Purple seems to be the color of safety. Uh, The gloves are purple. The glue is purple. The goo, not glue. Um, And then there's, I know, and then there's like a purple wall where Artie like talks to uh, the portrait in that secret room. And relatedly, orange is the color of like the need of safety. Almost warning. Like, when you see him and Lena for the first time, they're both wearing orange, like, in that scene together, when they're watching Pete and Micah leave. They wear, you know, the orange safety.
1: Oh, the vests!
0: Yeah, thank you. And so I'm I'm just interested to see how those might continue
1: to be a thing. Amazing um, observation. So as we get this, like I said, a technobabble explanation, and if you're not familiar with the word technobabble, I associate it with Doctor Who. It's a trope in science fiction that when you need to explain something science fictional, you just kind of throw out some science-y sounding words. Uh, oftentimes you speak really fast uh, or mumbly and it's babble. and it just, it, it gives you actually enough information to believe or suspend your disbelief, but not enough information to be a butt and decide that you're not going to believe Um, would you agree with that Jill is that kind of oh
0: yes that's a particular writer's choice like first of all I like how open the mythology is is what I was going to say they say that not everybody is affected by everything and I think that's what makes the show work you're it's partially like oh this stuff is happening and it's partially like oh, why is it happening to this person? It feels very detective-y and very real. And I think that's what separates the mythology of this show from the millions of other sci-fi shows
1: out there. Definitely. And that's so relevant to what happens in this moment because they're in the warehouse getting these explanations and something slips into Micah's purse. And we are aware as viewers, she's not quite, uh, but we are. And then when the show goes on and we learn what this is and why it was drawn to her, it makes perfect sense. Like this artifact has this agency to be aware of her needs and feelings. Which was also a great move on the writer's part. So what happens next is that Pete is drawn and not like even aware of being drawn to a tea kettle that has the ability to grant wishes, which is just like such a fun, random moment. Is he drawn to it? I thought it just appeared in his hand. It, I don't know, like, is this other one, the tea kettle, drawn to Pete or just drawn to literally anybody? I don't know. But it does just appear in his hand.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's sort of a confusing, fun thing to have happened. I wonder what the writer's apostrophe on the end of the S um, thought process was on that. Because Artie is asking for Pete to clear his mind and Mike is like, oh, that won't be hard.
1: I think that the joke is, let's say Pete is a red-blooded man. He's thinking about hot girls. And what if all of a sudden, like, 10 naked ladies appeared in the warehouse? <laughs> but, like, when we actually know Pete, like, I feel like it would be junk food or something. Like, I don't yeah. think he's thinking about sex all the time. So I think that, yeah, they're they're making some sort of joke about whatever you could be thinking right now might actually happen, and that could be really bad. So he, to his credit and for his characterization, is like, okay, and nothing happens. Like, he has mental control. Man, if you told me to stop thinking, I would start thinking <laughs> so much more. I would, like, it would be the worst. So I think that he is very, like, We've already talked about he's very in tune, he's very self-aware, and he's actually much more stable in a in a mature, emotionally intelligent way than the previous characterizations of him as a goofy guy would lead you to believe.
0: I think he he doesn't carry a lot with him. Like I think it's easy for him to clear his mind because when he has an emotion, he expresses it to someone. You can easily ask someone like him <laughs> To clear his mind, because anything that's rattling around in there isn't that important anyway, or he would have expressed it to you.
1: Yeah, he's like he's so great in this. Uh, He gets greater
0: as we go. There, there are too many invisible hands trying to tell him what he should be in the first episode. Mm -hmm. But I think it definitely he is a very lovable character, even by the middle of this episode.
1: Yes. Essentially, anything after, in my view, anything after the intro scene with the beautiful blonde, he is more lovable.
0: Once you get to South Dakota, I think it works. I think a lot of the establishing work of him while he's in D.C. doesn't make a lot of sense. (laughs) Um, But yeah.
1: Uh, We move on to someone who is not good at controlling her wish impulses. This is what I would have done. They say, don't wish for anything. I would have immediately made whatever wish. And Artie immediately knows that she wished for a transfer because Micah is still very displeased. And a ferret comes up, and the ferret is so cute and it's so random. And it's, I had forgotten uh, that this happens, and it's like the best part of the pilot. It's so fun. It's so, it's so
0: great, and it goes back to that sort of childhood suspension of disbelief, just going with it, just letting yourself believe that that happened. I think that's really great.
1: Yeah, and like the ferret pops up, cute ferret, and Micah's like, ah, and then the ferret goes to Pete, and it makes really cute little noises, which I'm sure are an audio effect, like it's not the real ferret making those noises, but it's like, it comes and starts like nibbling at Pete's face, and it's super cute. I think I tweeted this during our live show uh, that I said, I ship Pete plus ferret. <laughs> Not in earnest. Obviously, I don't want that well, to Matt be... Well, that is a relationship. No, but,
0: but it's cute. It's so cute. But also, can we talk about how much Micah loves the ferret and, like, it doesn't want to admit it? Like, she keeps the ferret. She takes care of it. She's like, well, it's... I mean... It's my ferret now.
1: <laughs> well, right. She's like, it, it's almost like a motherly, like, I brought this being into the world. I'm going to care for it now. Well, and we learn, too, that uh, this has happened to other agents before, resulting in many, many ferrets. <laughs> so from there, the duo, uh, Pete and Micah, go to Lena's B&B, where they have rooms to stay, and they meet the innkeeper, Lena. So... Again, Pete tells, I believe, Micah to unbunch your panties at some point on their way. Why? Why, writers? Did you write this? You didn't have to write this. You're wrong. I mean, yeah.
0: I think it's also just a, a phrase for him to have said and for them to make that not really funny joke after. Make the best of a bad situation and unbunch your panties. Or like, And then she's like, okay, how do I do that? And he goes, which thing? <laughs>
1: oh, you know what? I didn't remember that. That makes the reason they wrote it make more sense. It's supposed to be a joke.
0: Yeah. And also I think that he's just trying to get an emotion out of her. He knows that he can annoy her. (laughs) And when she gets annoyed, she can make a snappy joke. So I think he's just trying to pull something out of her because she's being very walled off right now. Which isn't my favorite way to have introduced her. I love Micah, but... She clearly isn't this straight-laced, perfect person with, like, no emotions and she's super serious on the job because she did clearly just get out of a relationship. You know, you have to have some level of intimacy with a coworker in order for that to happen. She, I think we're seeing her at a moment in time when she is particularly closed off, but that isn't really representative of who she is as a fully realized person.
1: So... Our introduction to Lena, I have a problem with. I love Lena and I think she is a beautiful woman. But we get an introduction to her from behind with a lot of angles on her hips, I would say, in a sexualizing way. And that's like as she comes in, like she's in this spaghetti strap dress. Or is that later she's in it?
0: I think she wears it the whole first series of scenes we meet her yeah I think she has like a sweater on at some point I don't know
1: I think she has a sweater on at some point too but we get a great I think subtle moment in the acting where Micah kind of storms by and Lena is obviously put off by Micah's we learn aura is kind of what Lena sees Micah is frustrated she doesn't like this job transfer she's carrying her ferret but at the same time there's interaction between Lena and Pete that Jillian and I talked about at length when we watched it because the angles of the camera change they they become like is it a low angle when it's from the bottom looking up yeah so they become lower and lower angles never to the point of like a weird horror film but they're basically moving down Lena's body as she meets Pete
0: but I actually re-watched this because I got more like aware Okay. Of the situation because Pete you know he felt the need to apologize for her for being a little rude it's like I think she just gets it like she knows where Micah is at and it's just like I'm gonna let her cool off it seems to be something that's within her realm of expertise mm-hmm. but Pete she has a connection with and I don't think it's a romantic connection I think she recognizes that he has vibes and that he's on some level shares an ability with her
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, because she looks at him and she has the squinty eyes that I think if they were on an even angle would look sort of seductive but it's almost like she's got an upper hand like not looking down on him in a um, condescending way but looking down on him in like a teacher pupil kind of way.
1: That's true because she tells him you're in tune it's very rare and with a couple of glasses of wine, I felt that <laughs> I felt that, that was her hitting on him. But without the glasses of wine, it's her saying, i figured you out. Uh, you know, I have a sort of supernatural power in the way that you also do. And I see you. I see you and I get you. And you know what? To, to agree with what you're saying... I had talked about this on the forum. Is it supposed to be romantic? Is it blah, blah, blah? And a couple of our forum contributors pointed out that when the end of this interaction occurs, Lena says, I hope your bed's big enough. And then you're like, uh, what? And then immediately Pete goes into his room and it's a twin bed. Yeah. So it's it's not seductive. She's an innkeeper. Yeah. Exactly. She's an innkeeper, and she's like, I'm putting a large, muscular man in a twin bed. It's a small hotel in South Dakota, a- and I think Micah gets a big bed, and Pete doesn't, so I love yeah, it. Yeah,
0: the room set decorating choices moving forward a bit Sure, um, are very interesting. Micah has the bigger, more luxurious room, if you can call it that, but mm-hmm. there's, like, nothing in it. The comforter is one color. You don't really see a lot of stuff in there. Um, but it's bigger, it's plusher, it's more comfortable, but more temporary looking. Pete's room has a lot of stuff in it. Mm-hmm. It's smaller, it's more colorful, you can see the window area. I feel like they said you can choose your rooms, or already said you can choose your rooms or something when he was sending them there. But I, I almost got the feeling, like, you choose the room and then it, like, is for you. Like, it's it just appears and what is, makes sense for you is what I got from it.
1: And I think metaphorically, too, just kind of knowing what we know about the magic of the warehouse. Like, if Pete, who is, I think, emotionally available, and he's got, like, a willingness to make a new home, if he is going to find a room, it's gonna be a homey room with with possessions in it, and it feels lived in. And you're right, whereas Micah is a very empty room, like, you had characterized her as closed off. She's, like, not wanting to make a home. She's not wanting to, you know, do those kind of things.
0: But she's in, moving forward a little bit again, she's in the bed looking at a picture. She's in a bed for two people as one person, wishing there was another very specific person there. And I think we get I think we get that from the situation. It's like, this is where I would want to be if literally everything about my life was different right now.
1: And that makes sense too, because... Kind of going back to Pete, you know, he might have had a hookup buddy or somebody, but he doesn't have a significant other and we don't get the feeling that he is desperately lonely in need of a significant other. And so, yeah, he's got a little twin bed and he's going to make his life. Yeah. So it's after this that we learn that the wallet that fell into Micah's bag belongs to none other than Harry Houdini.
0: (laughs) We do learn it. But, I mean, we we saw it. You can catch it that it was Houdini's wallet when it fell. But we didn't really understand, like, why that is scary. And you can tell me things about it.
1: Yes. So we did have a Houdini expert on the podcast to tell us a little bit about why he's relevant in this episode. And it was none other than friend of the show, Toby James. So Toby James has a Bachelor's of Arts degree in Film and Media Studies and is currently working as an educator, writer, and independent scholar. She is an over-caffeinated enthusiast of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So the first interview clip that I'm going to play for us is Toby explaining a quick crash course on who Houdini is, as well as why he is related to an episode that's kind of about hauntings and spirits and this particular Houdini's wallet artifact.
2: Houdini was actually born in Budapest has their advice. His daughter was a rabbi and they emigrated to the United States when Houdini was a year old. When he was around six, he started getting really interested in performing. He billed himself as an acrobat and then finances became a huge problem because it was a pretty large family and there weren't a lot of job opportunities for a rabbi. Houdini ran away from home, so he would, one, be less of a financial burden, and, two, he would be able to get a job and send money home. So he didn't become a household name until much later in his life. So Houdini, his mother passed away when he was out of the country, and that hit him really hard because they were very close, and on his deathbed, his father made him promise to take care of his mother, which he did. So that hit him very hard. He wanted to believe that there was something after death and that if there was a way to communicate with his mother, he could. So he started going to psychic and medium, and he found that they were using a lot of the same tricks that he employed early in his career when he tried to make a buck as a psychic. He decided against continuing that, even though he was could have had it because he felt it was wrong to take advantage of these people who were grieving so as time went on he made it his mission to prove that some of these psychics and mediums were frauds.
1: great
2: so (laughs) he
1: freely admitted that when he did magic tricks that they were tricks yeah And when he did that, he began to encounter something that was really common uh, because he lived in the end of the 19th and start of the 20th century, which was spirit mediums and psychics. And you would know
0: more about this than I would, but I was just listening to Stephen Fry's Victorian Secrets on the subject, Mm -hmm. and I found it extremely interesting because you think to yourself, oh, you know, it's wrong to prey on people who are grief-stricken, and you sort of think you understand intellectually what that is, but it's worse because it was such a time of like tremendous innovation in that sort of Victorian-ish age of like, oh, we can now talk to people within seconds on the other end of the planet because we have telephone. We are like learning all these other like scientific things that are being developed. Medicine as a field is becoming a little more respectable. It's an era of great change where what you can and should believe and what seems magical is suddenly happening. Like if you had to a previous generation said, you can pick up this device and talk to a family member like right now without writing a letter that that's something sincerely unbelievable so if you're looking at these people and you're like oh how could they believe something so stupid even if they're sad like Mm -hmm. I mean there are lots of things that they've been forced to believe in a very short period of time so it's especially treacherous I think.
1: Yes and I think what you are identifying and I'm so glad you have is that it was really common in this era to turn to mediums because of the reasons why people were dying, as well as the kind of post-evolutionary theory crisis of religion and people People wanting to believe in something, but having their religious background questioned would say, well, I I still want to believe in in some sort of afterlife. And so they would they would turn to this. But like you're saying, there is actually a real connection between the word media, which for us, you know, means film and television but for the Victorians would have also meant the telegraph, you know, the typewriter, uh, the, the radio eventually in the 20th century kind of coming more to the end of Houdini's time. Uh, so media and medium. It just means a m- mode of
0: communication, and that is a mode of communication between the life, the living, and the dead.
1: Exactly. Uh,
0: should we move forward? <laughs> we should move forward. Okay, so it's, it's basically the wallet is a trick. Are we, are we left to assume that it's like a magic trick that makes her think he's talking to her? Because he's definitely not.
1: Well, this is, this is a totally up to the viewer's interpretation. And Toby and I talked about this at the end of our interview because she's a big fan of the show. Uh, so she actually could relate her knowledge of Houdini to this episode. I think
2: there are two ways we can analyze this. The first is that Houdini really wanted to believe he wanted to believe so much that he and Beth and his wife came up with a code that he would communicate to her from beyond the grave if ever a medium were able to communicate with his spirit. So when he died, and get this, when he died on October 31st, every year on the anniversary of his death, Beth would have a seance. And there was a prize for anyone who actually could channel his spirit. And when she never heard the code, she never heard the words that she wanted to hear, after 10 years, she finally called it quick and said that, you know, 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. And the secret code they came up with that she never heard was two words, Roosevelt and Belief. The second word, believe, would have been spelled out in a secret code that they created using their own private stage language. That's amazing. I was just going to ask about the first word. Are you saying Rosabelle? Is that a name? Is it a special? So, Rosabelle held special meaning to them. It's believed that it was the song that she performed on stage when they met. That's really sweet, actually. Um, Before we forget, you had said that there were two possible readings, and I don't want to miss the second one. Oh, right. So my first reading is because he really wanted to believe and really hoped that there was something after death and he'd be able to communicate with that after he died or she'd be able to communicate to him. And the reason this is my personal reading of this is because in the episode, we hear the sort of projection of Sam say, Hey Bunny, which was his nickname for Micah. And it's kind of like their code. For my second reading is that Houdini put so much of his time and energy in the last years of his life into debunking spiritualism that the energy of the Bible wallet became a manifestation
1: of spiritualism. I found this mysterious voice, this guy, very creepy. Uh, Some of the forum posts agreed and some disagreed. Some explained, I think, a little better that Micah is unsettled. That doesn't mean that he is evil. It means that she is freaked out.
0: Yeah. I think it gets sort of to the heart of what Houdini's problem is with it. You miss a loved one You wish you could have them back as they were and just continue as if they hadn't died. But it's extremely unwelcome to pretend as if they're not dead.
1: Related to that, that night, Pete and Micah have their first heart-to-hearts on the porch of Lena's B&B. And if you are a fan of the show, we will get many heart-to-hearts on this balcony. Um, It's it's a, a kind of a place where a lot of important conversations happen. Um, And this is their first example of that, where Pete reveals that his dad died when he was young um, and that Micah grew up with parents who own a small bookstore. So they're kind of both talking about their pasts. Pete also says that he knows about what happened in Denver, which is that aforementioned police death uh, uh, or secret service, whatever they would have been, detective sort of death. But Micah doesn't want to talk about it. She remains really closed off. I think that this is just great character development and exposition. Did you, Jill, want to say anything about the night shot? Because you had talked about it in our live tweet.
0: Yes, a few things. I just as an aside, this is the moment where I really started to be like, oh, this is why they cast Joanne Kelly. Because they she's in there for a long time decidedly not having emotions so it's really hard to get a read on what kind of actress she is the moment where he can sense something is wrong of course he's not going to guess that her dead lover talked to her um (laughs) but he assumes it's the thing that he knows is upsetting her and goes hey he's gonna call and she just goes he better and the way she said it the emotions that crossed her face and then you just saw it sort of harden again like that was like okay I, I get it now. They should let you do mm-hmm. more of this this acting thing because you're good at it when you are allowed. But the night shot itself was interesting to me. Night shoots are expensive. I mean because you're getting people off their normal waking hours. it's you have to spend more money to light it to make it look good. like there's a lot going on and an outdoor night shoot, especially when you are actually having to deal with an actual outdoor light scenario is it's it's more expensive essentially than just Mm -hmm. filming during the day so between that shot and the huge expansive cgi shot of the warehouse that's that's sort of very much how pilots work pilots are meant to be in like the best episode of a series as an example for like the rest of what that series is supposed to be so they tend to get a bigger budget than normal so that they can really show you what they intend which (laughs) we can talk about a little later, is interesting because the pilot doesn't represent a lot
1: of what happens. Absolutely. Um, I just want to agree with what you've said about Joanne Kelly because her skill set is being vulnerable and showing emotion with her face. And once we get to see her do that, I love that you said this is why we have Joanne Kelly. This is the part of her character she was cast to do We, I also just have this note, she looks great in the moonlight. She does. She does. (laughs) Uh, Cut to, Artie is making some kind of criminal minds bulletin board, and he's also using the computer to discover something. It's unclear at this point, um, but this is kind of where the second part of the story, some other movement of the story begins to occur, because something is wrong in Iowa. We're about halfway through the TV episode, and we don't know yet, but we're about to get a kind of new problem that the characters have to address.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, it all sounds kind of interesting. There are all these magical objects, including Pandora's box, by the way, just like chilling in the warehouse,
1: but... Can I just make a complaint? Okay. They say Pandora's box is on aisle whatever, you know it's empty, that's not true. I know there's hope in the box. I know in Greek mythology hope is still in the box and the <laughs> whole point of that story it depends on who you ask and there's different Greek historians um, who have different accounts of the myth but like whatever the point is I know they they are super cynical and I want people to not be cynical and know that not only is hope still in the box, hope is forever trapped in the box so that even when you have all the crap in the world, you still always have hope so. Please keep talking, Jillian. I'm very sorry. Something's
0: wrong in Iowa. He wants them to investigate. Oh, he gives them, like, taser guns. The Teslas! Yeah.
1: Sorry, Those I Those are excited.
0: fun. No, you're allowed to. He's, he's great. He also didn't fare well, mental health-wise. <laughs> As a lot of that era of engineers and inventors
1: ended in a similar fashion. Um... So we are talking about this as if it's just a given that everyone knows A, about Nikola Tesla and B, about his history of mental health, which for Jill is super important because she does mental health work and... Um, even has a YouTube channel called Next Good Thing um, for people with anxiety and depression and PTSD, especially young adults, to go and get help. So you should go check out YouTube.com slash Next so that Jillian can give you uh, practical advice if you're struggling with anything. But... A little bit about Nikola Tesla for now, and then someday in a future episode, we will have a scholar who can give us specific, you know, artifact, relevant facts. But yeah, Nikola Tesla, the brilliant inventor, we would know him for sort of the inventions related to electricity, but it was his alternating current system that made a lot of the history of electronics possible But despite his brilliance as a late 19th, early 20th century inventor, he struggled with a lot of symptoms, which included both like visual and auditory hallucinations, insomnia, um, obsessive-compulsive symptoms. Uh, So he really had a genius mind that was tremendously troubled. Which
0: I think is an interesting parallel to the internally tormented Artie. Just saying. Just, he's very sad. He's a very sad character so far.
1: Well, can I add too, so they are being sent, Pete and Mike are being sent to investigate. And it's the James Bond moment of already giving them their gadgets. One is this gun. So that's the first uh, thing. But the second thing is what he calls the Farnsworth. Uh, it's, it's yes. like a little video communicator uh, do you have something
0: to say about this I have things to say about it because she said something like two-way video communication and I was like boy do I have a surprise for
1: you about the next few years of phone technology right <laughs> 2009 it was like we all had those uh like T-Mobile flip phones you know and yeah
0: iPhones like existed but they were like your lawyer relatives and they didn't have video chat yet.
1: Yeah uh, and and that's amazing because it's not that old of a show but it is old enough. but I do want to make a quick shout out here and I might include a clip even. if you are interested in the person that these are named for, uh, he's a real historical person named Philo T. Farnsworth and he is a brilliant and sadly forgotten creator uh, inventor of history. Uh, The best recommendation that I could give you is a 10-minute YouTube video, and it's by Jessica Farnsworth, his great-granddaughter.
2: My
0: name is Jessica, and I'm proud to be the great-granddaughter of both Philo T. Farnsworth and Elma Pem Farnsworth. In 1920, at the age of 14, while harrowing a field behind a team of horses, he had a revelation. If he could train an electron to do what horses were doing and go to the end of a row,
1: turn around and start over, he could send pictures through the air. You should absolutely watch this. I will post links to it online. Uh, You know, it's just so cool that this young woman wants to tell this story. And she also interviews Philo T. Farnsworth's wife, who Philo T. Farnsworth had passed away at the time of the the video, but uh, his widow was still alive. And she has these brilliant memories of basically the the rundown is Philo T. Farnsworth invented live television before, before people were ever broadcasting live television. He created a scientifically particular way to do it. I am not qualified to tell you why his way was different, but it was very effective and the, the video with Jessica tells you all about how exciting this was. And then World War II came and all of the technology, all of everything, you know, people's priorities in science and technology shifted. And the amazing thing that the widow of Philo Farnsworth says is that Philo knew that a war was coming and he, he honestly knew that he would never He would never get to see the fruits of his labor. I think the best part of the Farnsworth as a communicator in Warehouse 13 is that it calls attention to this amazing story and makes you want to research who this person is. And it's also like totally genuine and amazing to think that if World War II had not interrupted Farnsworth's practice... It's totally possible that, like Artie suggests, these two-way communicators could have been a real historical artifact. Anyway. Lena, the innkeeper, reveals that she found a stowaway in Micah's room and holds up the wallet, which, if you're observant, we learned was Houdini's wallet, with, like, it's a pair of tongs or something. So she's being very careful not to touch this because we are going to become very aware that it has an effect on people. She um, neutralizes the stowaway again with one of those sort of bags with the magic goo stuff, purple goo on the inside. And Artie says, like, that was a bad spark, something along those lines. So this this points out to us that this effect on Micah is going to be pretty extreme and pretty negative. And then Jill... You and I talked about this, like, on the phone, like, not on the podcast already, but about the fact that it has been neutralized but is going to still affect Micah?
0: Yes. Well, the effect already happened because it came into contact with her. I, I imagine it would be sort of, like, getting tased. Like, the immediate effect is bad, but, like, you don't feel good after.
1: Yeah, I guess... I guess you're right. It's gonna take time to not feel the effect anymore.
0: Also, something that I think is really important, at least visually, is we talked before about purple and orange. And I think this is another example of that really good contrast. So they put they neutralized the immediate threat in like the purple, which we talked about meaning safety. But also both Lena and Artie are wearing orange and it's like something bad is about to happen they're going to a place of danger and they are sort of personifying that whole warning situation again which i thought was interesting that that it came together again i'm really wondering if that's intentional on an art director or costume designer's
1: part incredible so once we uh, recognize the stowaway pete and micah go to iowa we have an amazing film term that you just taught me for this. So tell me about that.
0: Uh, just a chiron. Just I really like the Chirons in this show. Uh, a chiron is in this context, at least the location, the big words that are like, we're in Iowa or we're in South Dakota. They're really big and present and not subtle in this show, which I like. It's not quite a comic book style, but it's on the verge. And I just really like it. It's like, we're here now. And it just gets you into it. I like it. So
1: they're going to Iowa and then they get the funny diagnostic questions. Yes, (laughs) My favorite of which, and it does become like a trope that I is. Oh, gosh, I'm going to do this. You know, the trope, motif, theme, symbol. I don't know. Uh, I teach English and I don't know. So if your English teacher is quizzing you on those, they're just a jerk. (laughs)
0: for the record um a motif is something that recurs over time like the orange and purple it would be a motif a theme is an action or like a thesis so like a theme of the show would be like friends can become family so
1: it would be a motif then (laughs) pete and micah go to iowa and they meet a young college uh, guy named Cody and they're asking him questions like, do you smell something that could best be described as fudge when in fact there is no fudge? Pete is asking the questions in good faith. Micah does not find it.
0: I feel like Pete finds it entertaining and is like, I'm going to do my job. This is weird, but it's my job, at least for right now. And Micah is like, Am I I think she really feels like she's being
1: punished. Here is... uh. What we learn that Cody, who based on all other records that Artie had accessed, is a, a really nice guy out of nowhere, beat up his girlfriend. And this is, I think, giving us an opportunity to talk about, uh, you know, heavy themes in terms of the domestic violence aspect is really not touched upon In any thematic way, because it's a show about the artifact and it's not a show really about these two people and the struggle that they went through. But I wonder if just today, being a little more aware, they would deal with that more. Um, Because we're not quite there yet, but there's going to be a point at the end where Cody and the girlfriend reconcile. And then it's just like, well, yeah, it wasn't his fault, but we're going to have to. If you're a a viewer really reading the show, you're going to have to deal with that fact. Yeah. So I don't know if if we want to go there yet or...
0: I I do. I will have things I want to say about it later, but for right now, I do want to say I actually really noticed that too, and I made a note about it. On the one hand, I'm really not thrilled that it was glossed over and then they saw this fact and were like, but he's such a nice guy. But on the other hand, I'm really happy that it's sort of a perfect time capsule of not just that era of television, but that era of thought. Mm -hmm. I think at some point, I think it's the sheriff or, you know, one of the people who works in the office who says, did the FBI come out for every case among battery among college students, like sort of flippantly? And they're like, no, but we're here for this one. And I think that is actually very accurate to the situation even now on a lot of college campuses, but especially back then. College campuses, they're just not safe places for women a lot of the time. And a lot of this does happen. And I think that results in the law enforcement communities surrounding colleges and universities being sort of dismissive and flippant about it.
1: That's so thoughtful. I I don't know the right word for it. It's it's such a good reflection on exactly, yes, because 2009, um, absolutely, that is what our college experience was like. People got burgled, people got assaulted, people got sexually assaulted, and it was just like your risk that you take, which is like not acceptable. And yet yeah, you just have to take that risk if you're a woman going to college. And yet, you know, it was totally accurate. So thank you for mentioning that. And I will transition this to the girlfriend because we get her name and her name is Emily. And I just want to make a little shout out right here because we know Jane Espenson was the creator of this show. We know Jane is a like humanist and a linguist and a writer and a reader and so great she might not have done this but someone did it and I'm going to say it was her has a character uh, whose last name is Dickinson and a character whose name is Emily in the same (laughs) episode and it can't be an accident
0: I want to believe it's Jane too.
1: Emily Dickinson is too famous for that to be an accident. And the last name Dickinson, yeah, it's like a uh, you know, an English last name, but it is not common enough that that's just a mistake, you know. Yes. So, just like a super subtle and I think super relevant to Warehouse 13 reference that this show is always deeply embedded in not just pop culture traditions. Or science fiction traditions, but also literary traditions and historical traditions. It's amazing. So, hats off to you, Jane. We love you. Come on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're talking about Emily. Cody, who's being interrogated, starts speaking Italian and it gets really demon possession-y. Pete luckily gets a vibe just in time to throw Micah down and they kind of escape the wrath of demon possession-y Cody.
0: This is, I feel, like Micah is starting to be unable to explain things. The strength that he demonstrated was not normal and she says also that they felt like hot Mm -hmm. And I think that's all becoming more than she can reason away.
1: Yes. So after this attack, they escape just in time where we meet the godmother character. Her name is Miss Soliday. Lorna Soliday, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So she stands up for Cody, just like we would expect. And I listen to a lot of true crime. This is what always happens with rich people. The people who have the money for the good lawyer, the lawyer swoops in. The person is not answering any more questions. They're protected now. And that makes it harder for law enforcement. It makes it harder for the legal system to actually do something. Yes. So... Pete and Micah tell Artie what happened. And Artie is, he's trying to figure out the language that uh, Cody was speaking in. So they go to meet with Professor Marzato, And I would just like to point out a hilarious TV stereotype that happens right here. Which is the stereotype that professors are always in their office.
0: <laughs> They're never in their
1: office. But conveniently, Professor Marzato is there. He says that the Italian that Cody spoke means... If people knew the reasons for my fear, they'd be able to understand my pain. And this goes to the question that Jill asked: Is the Italian really that hard to read? First of all, the professor points out that it's hard. It's a 15th century dialect, like a very highbrow, fancy Italian, uh, not like what what is oh, what's the great word v- starts with a V? Nope. Vernacular. It's not a vernacular Italian, it's a highbrow Italian. And second of all, I took a semester of Italian and the only word I recognized was "si," which means if. <laughs> so in my opinion, the Italian is pretty hard. He says, Professor Marzato, that he doesn't really know much about this, but Micah knows something is up. She gets her Sherlock Holmes on. And surely enough, when we cut to them leaving Professor Marzotto's office, we see that he gets out a secret book and makes a secret phone call. So I think this would be the perfect time to recognize that this is the journal of Lucretia Borgia. And we had an incredible scholar on the show to talk to us about Lucretia. So let's introduce her. Our second artifact expert today is Dr. C.L. Fletcher. Catherine Fletcher from Swansea University in Wales is a historian of Renaissance and early modern Europe with an expertise in the Tudors, Medici and Borgias. She has worked on television programs that include the BBC Two series Wolf Hall and the BBC Arts film The Renaissance Prince. She makes regular contributions to radio programs such as BBC Radio 3's Free Thinking and was named 2015's BBC New Generation Thinker. So the first question that I asked her was, who is Lucretia Borgia? And the second question that I asked her is, what would a person like Lucretia be afraid of um, because that quote from the journal is obviously supposed to be really meaningful and suggest to us a really deep pain and fear uh, that we would like to figure out
3: what it is. So the Borges are a family that are most famous for the role of two of them as Pope. Um, now, the first one of those is the guy you probably haven't heard of. He's Calixtus III, and he was Pope from 1455 to 1458. The one most people have heard of is Alexander VI, who was Pope from 1492 to 1503, and he was his original name is Rodrigo Borgia. Now, the Borgias are a family that comes from Spain, but Rodrigo actually grows up for most of his life in Italy. And he becomes a cardinal in a church and a very senior cardinal with the patronage of um, Uncle Calixtus. Now, Lucretia, um, or Lucrezia, if you want to give her, give her the Italian pronunciation, um, I mean, either is fine. She's often anglicized. Um, Lucretia is the illegitimate daughter of. Alexander VI. In fact, one of quite a number of illegitimate children. And this is where we really get into the Borgia myth, because these guys are absolutely demonised subsequently. Indeed, even during their own time, when um, Alexander's in power, they're not popular with everybody. But I think they get perhaps unfairly demonised in subsequent years. And Lucrezia who goes through three different dynastic marriages, really particularly gets it in the neck. I think any woman in her position is going to be something of a political pawn. She's obliged to marry for her family interests. That's very much what's expected. Once she's at um, the court of her husband, she's obliged to do what she's told. Husbands have a lot of power over wives in... um, you know, in in this period. Now, she can um, try and exercise, you know, some influence, but particularly, I mean, one thing, the interesting thing about Lucrezia is that she's around still for quite a long time, 16 years after her father dies and is Pope no more. And for most of those 16 years, her brother's out of power, she is really on her own. And so she doesn't have her natal family to go back to to protect her. She's really got to make her own way as the duchess at this court, where people are really suspicious of her, because they've heard all of this about the Borgias, and they're not really sure about this Alliance and who is this new duchess. So you can see that for all that She is from a very powerful family. Once they've lost the papacy and lost a lot of the power associated with that, she's there on her own. So I guess that's the point in her life when she's likely to be most fearful. When they get
1: this, okay, it's about the book, your boyfriend is quoting from it, the professor is in fact familiar with the book, Micah, meanwhile, is trying to find out more about the professor, and she calls who we can figure out is kind of an old contact in a sort of government background check position. Uh, They gossip for a while and get a little bit of information. Is this the point where she hears that voice?
0: Yes. When she gets off the phone. Oh, but I do want to say one weird thing. She says, your boyfriend is quoting from this. And it's a weird thing to say. Like, I know it was said to make us believe Emily was the person doing all of this because we see, like, someone blonde in the background. But it was like, he knows what their relationship is. And he still said your boyfriend, and that was weird, because that's not what they are.
1: Yes, uh, it's about that book, your boyfriend is quoting from it, leads us to believe that Emily is the culprit, or knowing the truth that the godmother is the culprit, gives us this really creepy, incesty thing where uh, the godmother is like a cougar, I guess, going after her godson. But I wonder if this is like a illusion or myth or effect related to the artifact, because I have another clip from Dr. Fletcher talking about the very unverified kind of historical myth that Lucretia Borgia is associated with incest. So let's take a listen. So she
3: first of all gets married um, at the age of 13 in a dynastic match to um, a member of the ruling family in the city of Milan. Now, he's Giovanni Sforza, and... A few years after that marriage, um, the Borgia family decide that that's not really a useful alliance anymore. So she's very much in this world of royal weddings, where it's all about marrying somebody from a family who it's diplomatically useful to marry into. It's not about who you fancy, anything like that, whether you're going to get on with them. That doesn't enter into it. So they decide that they're going to annul the marriage. And it's quite difficult to get an annulment or a divorce in these days. So what they do is they use the excuse they claim that her husband was impotent now this kind of understandably upsets him quite a lot and he counters with this story that lucrezia and her father and her brother are involved in incestuous relationships so that's where the incest story comes from we start to get this kind of idea of of, of lucrezia as this sort of deviant, scheming, manipulative, and generally bad
1: person. I think we get the suggestion from this episode that Lucretia Borgia was a femme fatale.
0: But it is also very, you know, mythological Lucretia, at least.
1: Right! And so I asked our scholar about this, Lucretia Borgia's real romantic feelings or desires, And here's that clip.
3: And the thing about this period as a whole is that people in this period don't really write those personal diaries where they reflect on how they're feeling about stuff. You have to wait another century before you get those sort of internal reflections. So whoever you're talking about in the beginning of the 16th century, knowing, you know, how they were feeling internally is often quite difficult information to come by.
0: Just to go off that, like, When you look at this at face value, you're like, this is kind of a silly show. It's like doing surface level research on Lucretia. And that might be true. But actually, it makes the diary or the secret book that much more compelling. Because if journals weren't that common, then her having this, and if she kept her thoughts there, it would make sense that that was an object of hers that was more imbued with her emotional imprint. Yeah.
1: Oh, great. So Micah, yes, Micah calls a gossipy government technician person. Um, She, the government tech, gives just a smidge of information about the professor's last trip to Italy. Micah suddenly hears a voice and is really terrified by it. And Pete does this beautiful thing when Micah confesses in a sort of flurry of emotion that, she's hearing voices that can't be there
0: it made me love him that he didn't see her as a walking symptom Hmm. like it was one thing it wasn't something that repeated he has his vibes which tell him that she's not someone to be afraid of because you know any other teammate would you know or partner or whatever would have said these are the rules this has happened i have to report this She goes from being a partner to being a symptom in any other scenario. Whereas here, he's like, I told you about my vibes. Like, that's not normal. Like, let's just see where it goes. And it's like, you haven't done anything based on this information. You haven't tried to hide the information from me. So, you know, we're partners. Let's be
1: partners. Yeah, he's so supportive. He specifically tells Micah that she can depend on him to support her, like, when she's weak. Which I actually think is like the most feminist thing you can do in any partnership is to recognize that any person of any gender is going to have moments of weakness, they're going to have flaws, and that a good, again, a good partnership, whether it's just secret service agents or a romance, is going to kind of fill in each other's gaps, and it's just so good.
0: I would just like to point out, she turned down cookies because she doesn't eat sugar. And after the phone call, she is just chowing down on some ice cream,
1: because she stress eats like everyone else in the world. I love it. I didn't even notice, so that's awesome. So this takes us to Artie scavenging through his files. He clearly knows what this particular quote is, is referring to, and he's looking for that. Meanwhile, the professor is confronting the godmother so we have the blonde back of the head and for just a second we might think it could be emily but it's not emily it's miss lorna soliday and there is violent renaissance artwork flashing behind them as this happens (laughs) and the artwork in this episode is really amazing two of our guests commented on it um our houdini expert knows what the artwork is and talks about its kind of symbolism the, I, I pulled it up. The painting flashing behind the professor is a little later than Lucretia Borgia. Again, it's a Renaissance painting, but it's from the 1600s. And it's Perseus turning Phineas and his followers to stone. You can Wikipedia that and see it. And so let me go ahead and read the text that Toby James sent me about this painting. Maybe this is a stretch, but the Medusa painting might have been a parallel to how everyone's kind of turned into statues by the hair uh, the hair thing. So in the painting that is flashing behind them, Perseus is holding up the decapitated head of Medusa to turn his enemies into stone, and the power that Lucretia Borgia's comb has is to sort of freeze people so that you can murder them or whatever. Control them. Control them. Yes, that's a little better. Uh, And so I think that it was super smart of Toby to point that out to us to talk about and just like let people read that sort of symbolism. Our Renaissance scholar talked more about the painting that introduces Lucretia Borgia. So right after this scene, Artie does the cool zipline thing So as they're intercutting between home base at the warehouse and the actual in-the-field mission, Artie is going towards that painting of Lucretia Borgia. And first of all, the painting of Lucretia Borgia is not a real historical painting of Lucretia Borgia. It is a painting of the Roman Lucretia. Wikipedia says an ancient Roman woman whose fate played a vital role in the transition from the Roman Kingdom to the Roman Republic. Her suicide after having been raped by an Etruscan king's son was the immediate cause of the anti-monarchist rebellion that overthrew the monarchy.
3: That's right. That's not um, that's not a portrait of of Lucretia Borgia. I mean, actually, we are. Um, it's difficult to find any diff- absolutely definitive portrait of Lucretia Borgia. There are various images that are. Possibly her, probably her, I mean we have this idea that she's got that that she's got blonde hair um but beyond that it's quite difficult to pin down what exactly she looks like, but of course, that picture, and um, the Roman um Lucretia obviously is often portrayed in portraits um in, in sort of mythological paintings in quite salacious ways because the big story about about that Lucretia is her um, about her rape and then subsequent suicide so she's often the the artists have always got an excuse for her not to be only half dressed that you know mythological excuses for women to be half dressed in paintings are quite useful in the 16th century because you know women just being generally half dressed in paintings gets less and less acceptable as you go along you know if so i can sort of see the way why the tv people might have chosen it And I think that, you know, one of the issues with making TV about any historical figure is that you very, very, very rarely have all the information about their visual surroundings that you need. So you have to make those um, judgments about we're going to put in this painting. Instead, we're going to use that, you know, another image in a more symbolic way. We're going to treat some of the history metaphorically rather than absolutely literally. And and. You know, anybody, I've done a bit of historical advising for TV and you always get into those conversations about, well, we don't know. I think sometimes the important thing is to try and be clear about how much license there has been taken with stories of the past. And But the good thing about it is that more and more people who are bothered about knowing what really happened can quite easily check up on which of the bits that they're watching on screen really happened and didn't. So, you know, I I think I'm I'm fairly relaxed about it. And I think, you know, the past provides all sorts of material with which people can tell stories.
1: So choosing a person whose name was Lucretia and who did experience violence and the sort of political struggles of being an objectified upper-class woman is not a failure at all, but really something creative licensee that makes a thoughtful kind of parallel reading for people who would know enough art history to know that also
0: i would like to say a couple things first of all back to that purple theme of safety that back room wall the back wall of that room where the painting is is purple and then just going back a little bit we don't have to linger on it but like you're an academic and he says in that scene that he just took the book out of Italy, which like, that's not how protocol is. That's, that's bad professoring. Bad professor.
1: Oh, absolutely. So yes, good point. Because (laughs) he took that book out of Italy, let me say. The manuscript reading room in any library where you would encounter such a thing sometimes doesn't even let you wear a sweater Because they're afraid you're going to like tear a corner off of a manuscript and put it in your pocket. The fact that you smuggled an entire book is very unlikely. Yeah,
0: that was a little weird to me. I mean, I suppose, like, nothing, one thing about the open mythology of the show is, like, nothing is impossible. It's possible that even though he isn't the target, the direct target of the artifact, like, maybe
1: it bewitched him. So as we talked about, there's kind of two things happening really quickly, intercut. Pete and Micah interview Emily. All I wrote about that is that she works at a bakery that has not sold a lot of bread today. (laughs) It's just a bakery with so much bread on the counter behind her. And as Pete noticed... cookies (laughs) cookies <laughs> yeah uh so i like that we do at least get to see emily emily has a name she's not just like a faceless victim already finds the painting that we mentioned of lucretia borgia and tells her i know your pain trust me he's so sad man it's true and we talked earlier in this episode about how artifacts bond possibly with specific people who, like, relate or connect to them. And so we get that feeling, like you said, with with Artie connecting, too, that it's loneliness and maybe rejection or abandonment. And
0: loss. I think loss is a major part of it.
1: Yes. And so let's move on because something really bad happens. Yes! Right after these kind of intercut scenes of figuring out that it's this uh, Lucretia Borgia object, Pete starts getting a vibe and they rush around this corner, and it's Professor Marzato. He covers himself in gas and lights himself on fire. That's extreme. It's really scary. And it's
0: really serious all of a sudden. Yeah, but it does go to the theme of burning.
3: Yes yeah, so, in the period, burning is actually typically associated with um, the death penalty for heretics, so people who have transgressed in terms of religion um, are well, for example, might be hung and then their bodies burnt. but burning it kind of is the punishment that goes together with religious deviants, if you like. The actual murders that are associated with the Borgias tend not to be that type of Execution. But most of the sort of private political murders that the Borgias are involved in involve stabbing, strangulation, there are allegations of poison. Really, for somebody in Lucrezia's position, your weapon of choice would probably be poison. So burning people probably looks good on the TV screen, more dramatic perhaps than poisoning, but it's not necessarily accurate from a point of view of how people did their political assassinations.
0: So I think this is more thematic.
1: I glad it's thematic um and that the, the burning comes up again and that we asked dr fletcher about it so this is actually a great transition i'm not quite sure if this is where it happens but they are like okay professor Marzato has burned himself to death something is seriously up we've got to go back to his office and they go in there there's a great buffy joke pete opens the box and micah doesn't want him to speak italian like don't speak latin in front of the book sort of <laughs> Uh, So they search the office, and that's when the godmother comes in. She tells Pete and Micah that she and Professor were together for three years. She also tells them that Emily broke the professor's heart and Cody's heart. I don't think that's true. That's not true, right? Soliday is casting blame on Emily uh, and kind of making up this story because she...
0: She's jealous, and she's casting doubt on other women.
1: So, there's a story that in retrospect she gives them and is obviously not true, but it does allow her to get in the car with Pete and Micah as they rush to the party where everyone is going to be. And it's only when they're in the car that Pete gets another vibe and we kind of zoom in on this comb in her hair. Pete realizes they need to pull over, but it's too late. Just as they're about to do it, they get into this epic car crash so talking again you may be able to have some comments here about pilots and like effects budgets this crash is is i think way over budget for anything else we see this season
0: oh yeah that was really well done they they put money into that Effects like that, where you have a vehicle that is destroyed and like a huge pyrotechnic effect, first of all, you don't get more than one shot at it. And then in addition to paying for the car and the people who do the effect, you have to pay for the extra safety on set. This level of special effects that you get in a show is really reserved for pilots or after that fifth season mark.
1: So perfect. Good transition away from the crash and back to... Micah's interaction with this artifact. So before she wakes up, she wakes up in a hospital and it's a weird, foggy dream scene where we finally see the person, Sam, who we've heard about. Micah lost her partner. She was also romantically involved with this man. Here's how I described him low angle, with Captain America hair and creepy eyes. People on our forums told me they don't think he's that creepy, but it's just, we get the, the music and the effects of something being amiss, and I think it's, it's not Sam. We learn that he's benevolent and really loves Micah but just because we're supposed to be getting the feeling that this is not really happening, I think the effects give us a little creepiness.
0: Also, I think it's an uncanny valley issue because he's so beautiful, like just in terms of symmetry, like he's a very symmetrical, perfect looking person that it doesn't seem real.
1: I found him very ugly, but I guess I'm wrong.
0: (laughs) Well, I just mean like, he looked like a Ken doll and not a person, which isn't attractive. Like, he's so attractive, he's not attractive.
1: And we are maybe supposed to question whether he's benevolent or not. But
0: weirdly, I don't think it's either. I think it, it conjures up the emotion. Oh, yeah. And, like, I think the thing about artifacts is that they're not necessarily good or bad. They just have a power. Mm-hmm. Maiko is experiencing loss, but also anger and yearning at the time she came into contact with that thing. Yeah. And then they bagged it. So it did, it's not like it had a chance to like hook into her and do whatever evil thing that it may or may not have done. But it did have that spark of conjuring up whatever the emotional response would be in her.
1: That's such a good response. And I love that as a possible like third option for us. So we get another amazing cut. Once Sam is done encouraging Micah, she regains consciousness.
0: Yes, it was so beautiful. And like the zoom out, like that was a beautiful and well executed Mm -hmm. editing trick. But like that is a whole skill set that is involved. And like you can see that kind of thing a lot of times. And it looks so fake, especially in that era. Like, but... This was just surreal and beautiful and well executed. And I feel like that was another place where they put pilot budget to really good use.
1: Yeah, it was a beautiful scene. And it it brings us to Micah regaining consciousness and then being so hardcore. She was thrown out of the car. Probably shouldn't have lived, but don't worry about it. She rushes back into the car after Pete. That's her partner. And she's- She rescues him. She's gonna rescue him. And then, and I I believe it, Micah lugs a 180-pound man out of the car. Yeah, I believe she could do it too. Yeah.
0: And also, like, shout out to Pete. That badge lodged in his side. Like, first of all, super symbolic, whether intentional or not. Like, his dad's tragedy is a part of him. It fuels him. Like, I get it. But it wasn't too heavy-handed. And also, just like this scene really shows their strength yes like their emotional strength and their dedication to their job and to each other which i think pete needed to see from her more of a dedication to him to their partnership and i think she needed to see from him more of a dedication to the job and i think they both gave each other that in that moment And I think that really solidified them as
1: a unit. That was such a beautiful thing to say because you're right. It's like this second half of the episode brings them together in the way that we know and love and want. And it's those subtle things like that. Um, He rips the badge out of his side. Bad idea. I guess that badge was just straight in his, you know, muscles and didn't. Reach any vital organs. That's what I tell myself,
0: yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert in anatomy. Someone could tell me if that was a bad place or not. But just like in general, as advice goes, yeah, just le- <laughs> good just
1: go to the hospital, people. So this is where I, we learned from Artie that this object is about Lucretia Borgia connecting to a young man who she thinks needs her protection. And I, you know, I asked our scholar about this. And she said there's just kinda of too much uncertainty to really know. I do like the idea that an alchemist made it cause that's kind of cool and time period mystery related. The thing I don't get, because it ties in thematically to what we talked about earlier with campus violence, is that Artie describes this as a Renaissance roofie. And I don't know, I mean, I guess it, it freezes people and makes them able to be controlled. But to me, Rufi is just such a sexual assault-related word that I feel like that was in bad taste and not actually even accurate.
0: My inclination is to agree with you there, but I'm also trying to see... I mean, this is a violation. True. It's not a sexual violation, but it's a violation meant so that you won't remember it. Okay. I still think it's in bad taste. Right. I feel like this scene more than any other shows Artie's biggest character flaw and something really intriguing about him he says are you two all right like really worried and then sort of sees that they're all right and then immediately moves on to like the objective at hand which like is good in a time of crisis and you don't want to spend too much time like on a time sensitive issue like this but i feel like this is his core issue like he cares deeply about people but brushes past their feelings and needs in order to pursue a larger goal and then if and when something happens to those around him he just dissolves into self-loathing and blame because he should have been focused on something else and I think that like is a huge source of what his pain is and I think this is one of the first places where we actually
1: see it yes so this takes us to the party. In yes. our live watch, I guess we had too much wine. Oh, we had so we had too much. I get it now. I get what happened. We, we were really confused in our live watch. I'm sorry. It makes perfect sense. Um, who knows what happened in our collective brain that we share. Uh, so yeah. best friend telepathy, <laughs> no, it's fine. There is a party. It's a renaissance vaguely themed party
0: the party for the play. It's like the the wrap party. The play is done and now they're partying, which is a thing that definitely happens.
1: We see Emily and Cody, we don't get their dialogue, but they're kind of making up, which again is nice. And based on the information we have, we are supposed to believe that Cody was not at all in control of his body. And when he uh, attacked her, it wasn't really him. And so I would like to... To go back to that domestic violence thing that we mentioned just briefly before and finish out our segment that I call Heavy Themes, which is Cody apologizes to Emily. She seems willing to forgive him. If he has the information that this was supernatural and not really him, that makes the most sense. But if we let's think of some real world equivalents, like you were drunk or under the influence and then you did something you wouldn't normally do. That does not excuse violence ever. It makes people prone to violence that may not normally be, but I think if we made a real-world thematic parallel to Cody's actions, it has a very damaging connotation for Emily forgiving him.
0: I I know. I have two thoughts on the matter. The first one is, I don't think a kiss has to mean that you're back together. I think it might have just been an expression of that emotion that was never resolved successfully.
1: I like that. Yeah, that that we could headcanon that they have way bigger conversations to come and that this is just their kind of initial coming back together to deal with this.
0: Yeah, or, or at least a thing that may or may not go anywhere, but that may be some attempt at closure.
1: Right, because that's a perfect transition to what happens next, which is just as we're about to get the revolution, revolu- resolution between uh, Emily and Cody, Soliday grabs the brains of all the partygoers. And Pete and Micah arrive just in time to not get zapped by her comb which is convenient, but it, it ends up, I think, being a really exciting climax, so.
0: I think it makes sense. It's not like they can get there before everything bad happens, but they do know where she is likely to go. And I also would like to point out that Micah wholeheartedly believes Pete at this time. Yeah. From the moment of the car accident onward, Like, I think that that he's like, this was a comb, and she's like, I guess a comb is causing mayhem. Like, Whereas before, I think she would have been like, it's a comb. I can't do anything because it's a comb.
1: I think you're absolutely right and that that's how this all comes together so nicely in the end is that Pete is working, I mean with the help of Artie and everything, but is working to figure out what's going on and Micah trusts him to, to lead the charge. They kind of partner up this plan such that Pete kind of confronts all of the brain zapped party goers and there's a great shot where they all just turn to look at him uh, it's really creepy and, and perfect.
0: <laughs> but his reaction is so funny. You can see on his face that he's like, this is creepy, but I'm going to move on. Like,
1: <laughs> But it comes together perfectly. And while Pete is confronting all of these people, Cody picks up Emily, sort of bridal Carrie, and he's ready to throw her into the bonfire. And that goes to our discussion with Dr. Fletcher again about fire being the punishment for heretics, um, and heresy is like a religious, uh, what's the word?
0: It's a word for when you have a religious state or set of laws that codify your existence and you break from that religious law.
1: Yes, and I think that there there could be a million metaphors we would make for this punishment for heretics because we see regret from Professor Marzato about bringing the artifact out of Italy and disrupting the natural order of things, which in terms of like the history of science is very, very salient because the idea scientifically in, in this time period, Renaissance time period, is that there was a natural order to things. And then moving all the way into the 18th century, the idea that you could figure out the natural order and that you could use religion To help you understand, like, God made humans the best and most smart. God made the earth the center of the universe, which obviously we know is not true. So, like, that metaphor of heresy is possibly apt or possibly we're reading too deep into it, but I like it.
0: Well, but also, like, heresy is an accusation levied against people who you disagreed with, too. Yeah. Like, it was an easy excuse to demonize the other.
1: And that's exactly the Lucretia Borgia connection I was thinking of, was that Lucretia Borgia gets demonized in history because people didn't agree with her. I mean... Uh, Dr. Fletcher tells us, like, she went to get her marriage annulled because divorce was hard to get. But, like, legally it was not annullable. So, like, she's just breaking all of the rules of what society would expect Italian noblewoman to follow. So that's, I think, a great and relevant history lesson. And it leads us to the ultimate showdown where Pete gets up to confront Cody on sort of the front of the, the group before Cody can hurt Emily, and Cody has some kind of super strength.
0: But not the first time by Cody, and not the first time we've seen this strength, because he does rip the bolt off the table in the interrogation room. So whatever power this has, the cone gives her the power to control her enemies and strengthen the male under her protection, I think is what we can get from it.
1: Oh, and that, yeah, that makes perfect sense schematically for what the object does, the artifact. Um, So... Luckily, again, like you said, we get strength from both characters. Micah knocks Miss Soliday out, and it's awesome. And then goes to neutralize the comb in a very, like, not like apocalyptic, but like really hardcore, this might go super badly, things might blow up, but she's ready to do it. Um, She throws it in there, neutralizes the comb. Meanwhile, Pete, I didn't see him do it, but I believe that he did, took the cartridge out of the gun. So that you think Cody still has the power to shoot them, but the gun is not loaded.
0: Which is so genius. And also, I want to say that is one of the first times when the writer's really shown to me. Because the thoughtful, thinking ahead, nonviolent approach usually is written for the woman, and then the man does the punch in, you know?
1: I love it. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Yeah, I
0: like that Micah was the brawn and Pete was the brains, especially when they set it up in the beginning, like, oh, he's so dumb. Now not only are they showing that they're a good team and they trust each other, they're now saying that they can learn from each other and grow strength where weaknesses once were.
1: Yes, absolutely. So we're we're mostly to the end. It, there's a big sort of special effects, explosion, not explosions, but, you know, things going off. Everything returns too normal people are a little dazed and confused cody comforts emily which is sweet uh all seems well again and then we cut back to Artie. i guess the um the comb gets returned to the warehouse and he's putting it away back in the book you know locking up the artifacts for safety and he tells lucretia borgia love hurts i know Who did you love, Artie? What happened to you? Why are you so sad? See, you know, we do much later get some backstory on Artie. I don't know if they were thinking that far ahead. And I don't know if that's exactly what this is about. But also, not in a bad way, like, he's he's an older adult. He's lived through life. And, you know, again, just think of, I don't know, your parents or your grandparents. Like, people go through real, real crap. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So something really sad has happened to him. And then he drives off in that little Ford car. And to Jill's point, he's all alone again. It ends with him by himself. And we have this character whose thing that makes us sad about him is his loneliness. And, you know, to parallel that, Lucretia Borgia ends up alone too. Because her spirit is not out wreaking havoc anymore. Now she's just got to sit in her painting and her book and be silent yeah 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 that's
0: really well put i have nothing to add on that front so just saying like the last thing we see is they're all sitting on the porch together Artie and Pete and micah and lena is there and they're sort of living their lives pete looks comfy michael is like reclining and looking really comfortable she does get a call from dickinson that says listen Pete's staying but you can come back if you want it's up to you and then it's clear when she hangs up she's staying she likes this partnership she's ready for the new adventure she's let go of whatever it is that she needs to let go of expectation wise and I really like that you see sort of I don't know if Micah looks directly at the camera at the end but she looks close enough to it to us for it to be slightly unnerving But it's a good transition from the first time we see her totally stone-faced, looking straight ahead, completely unemotional, to at the end. You can see just in her face how at home she feels and how safe she feels and how excited. And there's like a million emotions crossing her face that tell you she's ready for adventure. And it's a good arc.
1: Yes. That's a perfect last look. That, I guess, it gives us the feeling that now, like you said, the work of a pilot is, first of all, to set up everything for your regular episodes but second of all to show what an episode will look like. And even if this episode doesn't do that second thing, it has done the first. For the most part,
0: just while we're here, according to the pilot, this is a six act structure, which means there are six commercial breaks and there is no tag. A tag is sometimes a show will like sort of end, the storylines will be wrapped up and then they'll go to commercial and come back and there'll be like one scene and then the end credits. So that's interesting and there's also not really a teaser or a cold open which is the reverse of a tag it's the thing that happens at the very beginning of an episode and then it's like really short it's like a scene or so and then they show the opening titles so we'd see warehouse 13. this one the act break happens and then the main titles appear which is a thing So this is a super long episode. I wonder if it will continue to be a six act structure or not. Because that, if not like the show is written with a certain number of acts in mind and then they add commercials. The commercials are just dictated by the network. It's the structure the network. Says you have to have for a certain length of show. For an hour long show, maybe you have six commercials or commercial breaks and that you just have to deal with it. So this was a long episode, and it's really hard to tell in a situation like that if that's what we're gonna get or something. Um, definitely, I think we'll get to the we'll get to the main titles quicker, but. It might still be at the end of act one we see the main titles or we might get you know one of those cute funny scenes main titles okay then here's the story so that's just something to keep an eye on because part of the work of what a pilot does is to sort of show us what we're going to get every week and this one definitely doesn't do that but it's not like egregiously bad or anything it's just something to
1: keep an eye on perfect thank you for sharing your industry insights with us were there other last looks that you had written down because I don't have any I just I
0: wrote down about Nora O'Brien because that was sad, and I wanted to know more and then
1: always forgot to look it up so Nora O'Brien was a production executive for NBC. You know more about networks than I do because this is a sci-fi original series
0: It's part of a conglomerate and uh, sci-fi belongs to NBC which I don't know at the time if it was just NBC or NBC Universal, but it's now NBC Universal.
3: Sure.
1: So that makes sense. If she's a production executive for NBC, then she would be sort of involved or at least tangentially related to this. And so I have her credits up and they're mostly post-production coordinator.
0: Oh, interesting. Post-production is not as much of a studio thing. Post-production is stuff like editing and like special effects, all that stuff. And there's a lot that goes on after something is filmed that comes together to make it look good. So it seems like that's where her expertise is.
1: So particular shows that she's related to on IMDb are several sort of sci-fi in, in genre. So she is uh, credited on Outbreak, 1995, Creature, 1998, The Outer Limits, 2000, Starship Troopers, 1997, and then The Outer Limits again uh, as a writer. Oh, wow. She she was working in things that do seem relevant to this. She would have been in a part of the network conglomerate. And then the article I saw about her death is really sad because she died unexpectedly while visiting the set of Parenthood, which I guess was an NBC show and she was just doing her thing. And so there are multiple TV shows on IMDb that were dedicated to her because, you know, first of all, having, uh, she was fairly young. I think she was like maybe 50. Yeah. So it looks like she was in her fifties and I mean essentially died doing what you love which is which is what you would want but but died working on an amazing Unrelated to Warehouse 13, but Parenthood is an amazing show. So, yeah, kind of them to dedicate it, but quite sad.
0: Super sad, but glad that she is remembered on a lot of things. So, we, I guess, should dedicate this to her, too. We will.
1: She was very important, so we we recognize and remember you, Nora O'Brien. And thank you for your contributions to a bunch of important shows. Yeah. So, before we go, we can end on a slightly lighter note Uh, which is an amazing clip that I did not have room for in the actual show. But I would count this as not a blooper, more of a deleted scene from our interview with the very generous Dr. Catherine Fletcher. So this was in response to a question that I asked about whether or not there was a different way of studying Lucretia Borgia besides the scandalous
3: history that we know her for, and this is what she had to say. What scholars are finding now with Lucretia is that there's actually a lot more interesting stuff to say about her business dealings, and later in life, once she's settled in as Duchess of Ferrara, she's actually um, responsible for some quite significant projects in reclaiming lands, so like reclaiming marshlands, putting in drainage projects, um, setting up a mozzarella factory, I mean, a cheese factory, right? This is not what you typically associate <laughs> with Renaissance um, you know, women, with this kind of, you know, all these tales of murder and incest, We actually ought to be talking about cheese. And so... In some ways, she's a lot more boring than you think, but in other ways, you know, this is interesting stuff in itself to see the extent of, you know, interest in business and enterprise that women could actually have in this period once they are married, they've had their children, um, they're in a position of power, they they can set up and work on these projects. Nobody says, like, there's, there's, there's an article called, you know, Lucrezia Borgia, Entrepreneur, and I just think, you know, Lucrezia Borgia's cheese factory is would be a great sitcom, you know, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> she's, you know, she's the boss and all these kind of people are, you know, sitting around going, oh, you know, what's she going to say today? And, you know, it's a very, very different image from the one that we typically have. But actually, if you think, you know, what are her significant achievements, a lot of that is around... You know, the, the patronage and redecorating a Duke's apartment at a castle in Ferrara. And then, yeah, in this land reclamation and in what she then did in business.
0: Um, so that, I believe, is it for us this time on Warehouse 13. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time, agents.
1: And don't forget, now that we're on iTunes, we need your subscriptions, rates, reviews, and downloads. We get no numbers unless you download, so please... Give us a little bit of help. And remember to come hang out with us online at warehouse13pod.com. That's warehouse13pod.com. Bye.